Hi everyone! Welcome to the Good Tech Fest podcast. My name is Genevieve Smith. I'm excited to be back guest hosting another episode. I help social impact organizations align their data and data practices to their missions. Nothing is neutral, so the way we understand and interact with our data will always reflect some set of values. It takes intentional work to make sure that they're the values that support our missions. I'm really excited about the episode we have for you today. I had the honor of sitting down with my dear friend and colleague who I look up to so much, Donita Folkvane. She's a diversity, equity, and inclusion expert leveraging knowledge management tools and methodologies to ensure that access and information, and as a result, power, are distributed fairly and equitably across organizations to drive engagement and performance. She stands, this is, these are her words, she stands on the shoulders of giants and unsung champions helping to guide organizations, often kicking and screaming, along the continuum of diversity, equity, and inclusion with the end goal of achieving justice. Donita is also the Senior Director of Member Engagement at Philanthropy New York. This conversation is full of ideas, love, and honesty, and one thing we want to make sure and name, so much of what we talk about here, the ideas, the products of work, the ways of working, are a result of so much collaboration and learning, not only from the people who came before us, but the people who work with us and the people we ultimately want to work for. So here goes. Hope y'all like it. Okay. Hello, Donita. Hi, Genevieve. Thank you so much for spending some time with me on the Good Tech Fest podcast. Um, I would love to just jump into it. Um, I adore talking with you, um, at you, hearing from you. Uh, so we will keep this as succinct as, as we know how. Um, but I would love to just start with an intro of sorts to hear not only who you are, but how, how you got here and, and what feeds you. Ooh, I love those questions. Um, so first of all, thank you so much for like inviting me to have a conversation. Um, we have a mutual admiration society going because I'm just so joyed to to be in conversation with Genevieve at any moment. And thank you to Good Tech Fest also for for hosting us. Most much appreciated. Um, so you know, I you'd asked me like spoiler alert Genevieve sent me some questions ahead of time <laughs> so I could prepare and not um, iterate externally hashtag rambling um, and so I thought about how I wanted to introduce myself and uh, I think if anybody's talked to me before they know already what I'm going to do which is that I'm going to read my I am poem which is something that I am very proud to read and also i would love for it to be a companion or a maybe in a in a future world a, a, instead of having a resume having everybody send an i am poem as as well as a cover letter so here's my i am poem i am african by birth american through naturalization i am an immigrant forged from the hateful ideology of apartheid, tempered by the casual and relentless racism of the United States, joyfully and unapologetically indomitable. I am a torchbearer, a storyteller, 
a steward of knowledge. I am a woman, a daughter, a sister, a friend, a non-blood related auntie. I am a Tar Heel, a New Yorker, an opera singer, a logophile, a philanthropist. I am loved, cherished, privileged, angry. I am. Wow. That's really beautiful. Thanks. And I think that anybody who would write an I am poem, it would be equally as beautiful, but beautiful in a different way, right? Mm-hmm. One of the, the um, knowledge management tenets that uh, David Gertine actually taught me uh, was the quote from Socrates of, uh, a mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be kindled. And so I just want people coming out of this podcast, coming out of anything that I present or host or anything to have like a kajillion questions. I want their brains to be like, but, but I, I don't know what to do. What? And just, you know, write down all the questions. Cause those I think are the best things to, to be a part of. Mm. Mm. And I, I feel like it's relevant. And we were just talking about this before we started recording, but the first time I met you, um, instead of that traditional intro, sort of, what do you do? Where are you based? Um, you asked me what makes me laugh and I've learned so much from that. And one of the reasons that I wanted specifically to have you on, uh, on the podcast was for me, you represent so much of what's missing in knowledge management and our sort of like back end work in nonprofits, which is that humanity. And that I am poem captures that I am angry, I am loved, all of it existing together. And that I think what nonprofits especially have a very hard time doing, which is holding these multiple truths and being comfortable and even excited to have those questions after the conversation. And this idea of consistent learning, we we never know enough and that's the beauty of it. Um, and you're like really into systems. <laughs> and I think that those those two things don't always exist together and they're not always nurtured. And I know through our conversations, you even helped me nurture that in myself. Um, so, which gets us to the next question I wanna ask you, uh, which is sort of how do you define or understand quote unquote data or tech for good? Okay, another thing that I think we may have discussed at some point, I have so many soapboxes. Like, it depends on what day of the week it is that I pull out one of my soapboxes. This is one of them. <laughs> um, as you mentioned, I, I love systems. I don't like manipulating them. I don't like building them. I don't like the back end of stuff. But what systems can accomplish, and by systems, Thank you for asking for clarity. Um, there, you know, uh, there are three pillars of knowledge management that I refer to, which are um, technology, process, and people. So the technology is kind of easy. You're like, oh, right, we've got uh, CRM, we've got our hardware and our software, and there we go. And then the process part is another agnostic thing that 
has to like bridge that. Uh, all of these things are bridges. And then you get to the people who are certainly not agnostic. Um, and so if you think about it, really, data lives in the mind of people, in the minds of people. So you, like process and technology are never, ever going to have a bad day, are never going to not have a, not, not be able to go to sleep or like think about a war in, in our world, right? They're just going to be, which is why I think that everything about tech and data has to be centered with human humanity, with the humans who are going to make or break that system. So like what I would consider a good system that is not a human system because humans are part of a system too. Fibonacci, man, Fibonacci. Um, but what I consider a good system is a system that allows the people for whom it was designed, the people who are going to be using it to look at it as a source of ease, a source of abundance. Right, so if you know how to use the system, if it gets you to do your job that much easier, if it holds information that you didn't have access to before, that's a good system. And it's so, I'm smiling, nobody can see us, but I'm <laughs> smiling and nodding um, because yeah, you can make tech and data really do or say whatever it is that you want them to do or say that that day. Um, but that human humanness piece of it. And, and I would also love for you to talk a little bit about um, if, if it resonates with you, but, you know, you talked about that um, systems, technical systems being a source of ease and abundance for the people who are using it. One thing I've been super interested in in my work, and we've talked about this before, is not only what's happening in the in the sort of organization within the walls of the organization, but also what about the communities that that organization is is working with. Um, and so, yeah, with those sort of three pillars, I think you call it the three-legged stool, right? Yes. Um, is, you know, do you have anything to sort of expand on in terms of what about outside of the organizational walls and how can our systems impact um, rather rather well or, or rather harmfully the communities that we're working with? Um, so one of the things I talk about is um, addressing trauma in our workplaces. Um, and it, some people think that is just so um, hysterical. Um, in, in the in the true meaning of the word his, hysterical like why why are you talking about trauma in the workplace trauma is a separate thing outside and we do not bring that sort of thing into the workplace um, but but we do and there are there are traumas that happen for human beings that are human centered but technology and process can also create trauma unintended trauma for the people who are using it, which is why it's so important to build trust around all three of these pillars. The, if you trust your systems, you trust your process, you trust your people, if there's ever an, a moment where one of those things falters, 
the other two can can support it, undergird it, right? So ex external to the organization in in some ways in my mind doesn't exist because we're all this is this is the problem with me because um i learned what is the the term the fractal thinker mm -hmm. um rather than just going from zero to 60 in like two seconds i i just see so many things that are interrelated if if we are working with um, so in philanthropy, if we're working with grantees or funded partners, as I like to refer to them, or if we're working with vendors or um, consultants or anything, they're all part of the ecosystem. And in order to integrate those sort of peripheral, but still part of the ecosystem into the system, the internal system has to work first, right? And this is what frustrates me so much about so many organizations is that they they tend to look outward to fix things rather than looking at the data the the people the process that they have internally asking the relevant questions about what's going on there where does knowledge go to die where is knowledge hoarded where is knowledge flowing well where are there gaps in knowledge all of which you can like then examine why does this particular team work so well is it because everybody is trained on the system and they got the training like from this particular person or from this particular um, program that, that had a really great setup and then the program went away? Um, yeah, it's just, it's all so interconnected that I can't really separate how you would, how you would talk about external versus internal sometimes. I. I love that answer so much, um, especially since, you know, I work as a consultant with organizations and um, and we tend to think in really binary terms, um, not only with qualitative or quantitative data or storytelling or are we using graphs, um, but also thinking, well, this is behind our walls. So if it does work or if it doesn't work, that's fine. It doesn't actually matter for our mission. And when we think about what you were talking about, that ecosystem, um, and I also just want to highlight that use of language, calling um, what are typically referred to as grantees as funded partners, that describes a much different ecosystem than we may be used to when we think about these power dynamics and and what it looks like, whether you're inside the organization or outside of the organization. And, you know, just reflecting on everything you just shared, it also brings me back to something I love so much about you is not only your humanity, but humility, because I think that also puts systems in a place of it's, it's a system, it's ours, we're using it in a way to do our partnered work with the people around us and the ecosystem around us rather than, well, we use this CRM. So whether or not you're on board is going to dictate whether or not you have access to this knowledge or whether or not you can contribute to the knowledge that we're talking about being managed or not within organizations. Um, so I think that's that's huge. And I kind of want to just pause on that for a minute and let that sink in of whenever we're doing any sort of organizational change management or thinking about systems and data and tech, uh, whether it's super high tech or whether it's a shadow spreadsheet at a library, um, 
are we thinking in a really binary way when we come into the doors of the organization? And to invite anybody who's listening to this to kind of challenge that and sit with that nebulous, constantly shifting space. Um, it also that's, that's reminds- hard though. I'm sorry to interrupt no. you. Go ahead. Um, I think we're also used to structure, however we define structure that, um, and you can see it in, in the return to quote unquote normal uh, after the pandemic. Normal wasn't working. It was a mess, right? But but it was structured. You you knew where you stood. So here's an opportunity. The world basically paused for about two years, and that pause could have been a time of deep reflection about re-examining, reimagining how we do things in this world. And I think for a lot of people it was, and it still is. And I think this is where these sorts of conversations are are coming out. But Structure is a hard crutch to give up. And if you're not used to, like if you're asking people who are used to structure to live in ambiguity, you are causing hurt. It's like, how can you transition very structured, necessary minds into places of some ambiguity? It's like a swimming pool, right? You don't wanna just throw somebody into a swimming pool. You first are like, okay, here's the ladder, here are the steps. Um, see what it feels like to hold on with like half of your body onto this ladder and then just sort of swim about in this nebulous <laughs> water thing. And now like let go of, of half your body and maybe just your, your hand and your foot are on that step, uh, on the ladder, right? And then maybe with another person in the pool beside you, let go of your ladder, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's at such a it's, a it's a it's a much more gentle entry mm -hmm. which i think it also gets back to something that you mentioned earlier in the conversation of this is life you you alluded to it right this is lifelong we're mm -hmm. constantly learning and and yeah so much less um take the walls of the building away and much more okay yes we're learning how to swim are we remembering why we're learning how to swim? Right? Like, and that's what I think about with that mission alignment of, okay, yes, we're doing a systems implementation or we're moving from our shadow spreadsheets to the database, right? That's incredibly scary. And it's, and it can feel very, very threatening. Um, and to make sure we're not making these changes without bringing the rest of that ecosystem along, even if on that day, bringing the ecosystem along looks like saying in a meeting, hey, remember that we need to talk to community. On that day, that might be enough because I think yeah. organizations are also really scared of making that investment or that commitment. Um, and another thing I'm just bringing up uh, Donita's greatest hits in all of our conversations, but I think <laughs> oh, no. it was about a year ago, we were talking with a couple of other dear, dear mm -hmm. friends and colleagues about change and change management. And one thing that hit me really hard that you said was, you know, I don't know, and correct me if this doesn't sound right, but I don't know if it's that people are afraid of change, but I think people are very afraid of uncertainty. Yeah. And that's huge. And so I'm going to take right on that as a segue to my mm -hmm. next question, yes. which you mentioned um, building trust mm -hmm. as a huge, huge piece of this. And I think, you know, I think it can be easy to um, at least 
for me, uh, for sure, to get into these kind of academic and theoretical conversations about change and what would it look like if all of our data and knowledge management practices actually reflected our values. It's very easy to live in the clouds on that. Yeah. And so a lot of organizations I work with are always asking, um, okay, well, what do we, what do we do? What, how, where do we even start? Like, that sounds great. We don't have any money. Our staff are incredibly overworked and they already don't like us very much. So where, what, and they're all scared of data. Like they're not data people, they're program people. What do you want us to do? And so my question, which I think you've, mm. you've answered a lot of it, but I want to name it really explicitly is, um, you know, what do you see as the sort of conditions for success for this type of work, um, you know, specifically thinking about that technical systems piece and that uh, sort of maybe more concrete knowledge management piece, because uh, I think folks tend to start with, we need to find a software vendor, we need to do an implementation, we need to clean the data, we need an evaluation, right? That's where a lot of folks start in, in this field. So. I would just love to to hear you talk about kind of what you see as the conditions for success or that fertile soil for this work. I love these questions. Um, it goes back to the swimming pool. Why are you learning to swim in the first place, right? Um, so the end the end goal of a CRM is not to capture data. The end goal of a CRM, for example, is um, to make the lives of the people who are capturing data easier so that an organization can rely on data to enhance its relationships customer relationship manager relationship <laughs> right um it, it all comes back to relationships um when i was working on a team and when we were coming up with with strategies or with any sort of um, anything to do with tech, well, anything to do with anything, actually. Um, we had two, luckily they were on my team. And when I, when I started doing things for the entire organization, they still remained like my, my guideposts. Um, I will not mention their names, but let's call them um, Susie and Sarah. And Susie would, like, if you gave her a 52-part thing to do in order to get something into a database or into a grant form or into a um, request for tuition reimbursement or anything, Susie would fill it out. And she would be like, okay, I hate this all, this makes no sense, but she would comply. So there's Susie. Then Sarah, on the other hand, emails would go out, nothing maybe three, four, five months later, when Sarah needed that information, she would then like scattershot uh, email like 15 different people in the organization and be like, wait, what's happening? I don't understand. Why are you doing this? I, did something change? And for a long time, I would think it was Sarah and Susie's fault that they were not adhering to the system that we were creating or the, the form that we were making. And then I realized, okay, you're foolish because Susie and Sarah are not, they're not unique individuals. They are unique to themselves. But again, if you look at 
the system of humanity, you're going to have people who comply, people who love working in a database, people who um, are, like are scared of buttons but have hold but hold all of the knowledge. Um, I, we may have talked about this before too, because there you know there are some pivotal moments that sort of define things for me. And one of my pivotal moments was in a meeting when we were, when the the tech IT folks were separated from the program folk and were like, here's how you talk to each other. <laughs> and the realization that I came to was that in philanthropy, especially um, the holders of knowledge tend to be between 45 and 65. And the manipulators of that knowledge or data tend to be between 25 and 45. So if you've, if you're in the in the latter category, you've you've explored every single a lot of systems. You've had, you know, MySpace, Friendster. I, I talk like I know what I'm talking about. I don't, but you know that there have been. A, you know that there's a settings button somewhere. Let me go find that setting. So even if you're not a, a native digital thinker, this is also a term I've now learned. That was nice. Um, mm, then you have an experience to, to, you're not scared of it because you've had experience with finding the settings button on like 15 different platforms. If you're in the 45 to 65 group, the chances are you're higher up in the hierarchy, which means that your manipulation of the data is very rarely do you have to, to interact directly with the systems. So if you're a native digital thinker, it's fine. Cause then you be like, oh, okay, here's like, okay, a new system, great. But if you're not, it freaks the bejesus out of people because th their, their identity as an expert is called into question. And anything that makes you feel dumb is not something with which you want to engage. Mm -hmm. One of the most powerful framings of that that I've heard that's been really helpful in this type of work is change comes with loss, whether it's perceived or not. And that what you just described is the perceived loss is loss of competency. And if yeah. I'm a manager and if I'm a boss, I it's my job to be competent. What are you talking about? No, I need my spreadsheets. I need my post-its. And, you know, it also makes me think of, and thank you for, for sharing all of that. It makes me think of a, a project I just finished where, you know, as you were talking about Susie and Sarah, yes, they are individuals unto themselves. And we can think about personas in organizations yeah. and, um, you know, in, in trying to make it kind of fun, um, came up with three data personas of people who were navigating the, the data ecosystem at this organization. And, and there were the data dreadful, the data dreadful, you start talking about it and their eyes glaze over and they look a little pissed and they don't want to have the meeting. These are the folks that, you know, for the, the sort of knowledge management and data and tech consultants on uh, listening will recognize at the end of an interview with, you know, a staff member, they'll say, good luck. And it's like got a tone, right? We we've all interacted <laughs> yes. with these folks. I'm I'm going to borrow this, you know. Please, okay. please. Mm -hmm. So the data dreadful, um, yeah. and then data don't bother. Data They've been around long enough. 
that, you know, yeah, okay, sure. We got a new system like 10 years ago or five years ago. It's fine. My life didn't change. And actually my life got kind of hard because now I'm tracking everything in triplicate. So, okay. You hired another consultant. I have three months to wait this project out. Right. So it's kind of that apathy and there's definitely some data anxiety there. And then you've got the data daydreamers. These are the folks, I think these tend to be the folks who are responsible for that manipulation of data, um, who they're the ones at the end of the week get really excited and organize the shared drive because it needs to be organized, right? (laughs) So they're great thinkers when it comes to this. They're not getting compensated for their work. They're usually young. They're usually women. They're usually also not white. So this gets to an issue of equity as well. And there's so much, I don't know, I want to say morality assigned to these things, right? So I had to spend a lot of time with leadership saying, your data dreadful are not bad. They're not, they're also not wrong. They're using the data, right? The information that they've had over their careers and they're making very informed decisions. (laughs) This has not gone well. And so one of the things that I've been really interested in is not only understanding and, and respecting these personas, but also saying, There are risks and benefits to all of these personas. The data dreadful are going to poke holes in your ideas where you need holes poked. The data daydreamers are going to be the early adopters and the activators of of these ideas. Um, Yeah, and that that building relationships and the trust. And I think one thing I really want to highlight as well, you know, what you of so much of what you just shared um, is that, oh, it's not their fault. Mm -mm. It's the system. And how are we, how are we conditioned to think about these things? Do people have all of the tools that they need? Are we speaking the same language? Often the answer is no, Um, which I also think is so relevant to um, my, my final question and, and something that, you know, you've done a ton of learning and work uh, and sharing of knowledge on, which is knowledge management as a tool for racial equity. Um, and one of the things that I'm so excited about in, in that work and in so much of what I've learned in conversation with you is just like data health, we tend to think it's only one person or one department's responsibility. And I, at least in the organizations I've worked with, racial equity belongs to the chief people officer or HR or, you know, the yeah. consultant, right? And thinking about knowledge management and information ecosystems as a tool for racial equity um, is so key. So I I would just love to hear anything you want to share there, but especially those basics of, especially for folks who, you know, maybe this is a new idea for them. Yeah, thanks. Um, oh, wow. You're kindling my fire. Um, <laughs> the um, Okay, so a couple of things that I want to uh, point to in in what you shared. First of all, these alliterative names are fantastic. Um, the best part about the data dreadful, data don't bother, and data daydreams people is when you get them talking to each other. When you can mm. take yourself out of the conversation, because then, and this is, I've, I forgot that you'd asked for like real world solutions. Part of it is finding the people and 
you, you can do an organizational network analysis. You can look that up on the Google and like plug in things and get a, a beautiful constellation spit out, which I would highly recommend if you have the funding and if you have a big organization and everything. But if I say to you, who are the people in your organization who just know stuff that you just go to when you're like, how, how do you dial out? Or like, um, this machine is not working. Do you, how do you do it? They're not necessarily going to know the answers, but they're going to know the people that you need to, to get to them. Right. Um, so finding those knowledge centers. And as you mentioned, Genevieve, a lot of times those people are from marginalized communities. Why? Because we have had to figure out how to negotiate our in predominantly white spaces for most of our lives. So again, even like, even if you're not a natural empath, if you don't like for me, not that I'm an empath, gosh, I no, but like, I, I've had to negotiate, figure out not only coming from a different country, um, being a woman of color, I've had to figure out what the conversation is that nobody's told me is 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 taking place right and so um i've had to like understand how i approach this person to talk to them if their door is closed then it means this that means this thing for this person that the piece for that person um and if i have a question because i've got the i think i might have the wrong form um the person I need to go to is a little prickly. So how do I, in, but not in a manipulative manner, in a trust-based approach, approach, get to that person and honor that person's knowledge. That's, that's what it is. It's, it's honoring knowledge of the people who hold it. For a lot of folks who are in the white dominant culture, they've never had to figure out how to talk to somebody because nobody's ever questioned their their uh, what is it their reason for talking we just assume oh if the white folks are talking it means that we need to listen it's not the same thing um because in in those parts of your organization if you if you're lucky enough to work with a diverse sphere of folks. And by diverse, I am not saying black people. Oh, please, diverse is not black. Diverse is black, brown, Asian. Um, it is younger, older, differently abled, physically and mentally different thinkers. All of that is what I consider diversity. Um, the people who have had to negotiate spaces that are not the dominant spaces are the people who are, who are gonna know how to get you the information that you need. Mm -hmm. And this is where you have to ask yourself the question, is the end goal a CRM that's up and running? Or is the end goal a CRM that is engaged with 80% of your organization, 85% of your organization? And if it's the latter, I would hope it's the latter, because I, you know, there are people out there who can who can get a CRM up and running for a, an organization of thousands in like three months. Honesty, three months. Nobody uses it. Mm -hmm. 
It's, it's so much. And, you know, it's making me think of earlier in the conversation when you mentioned, um, we bring trauma into the workplace and rarely is that talked about because it is looked at as hysterical. Hello, white supremacy. That's, it's so baked in. And when you're thinking, when everything that you were just sharing about, um, body language is the door closed. What is the energy in the room? And can I risk opening up myself to build this trust and always making these constant decisions and managing everybody's emotions and managing, um, managing the work because yeah. everybody else is busy talking. Yeah. <laughs> all and of then- that oh. is also so, no, no, no. Like all of that is so discounted because it's seen as soft or woo-woo, or we don't talk, we don't talk about love. We don't talk about trauma. We don't talk about hurt. Um, and we don't talk about grief. We don't talk about grief. And there in, in that space, there is no room for grace or forgiveness or moving on. And that is also baked into white supremacy as well. Um, mm. yeah. Um, I wanted to, to hearken back to a couple of things that you said, because, um, when you were talking about the binary culture of data versus stories, I was like, what people, what I would love for people to realize that within data exists stories and within stories exist data and they're equally as valuable. You know, like if you had a perfectly running system that had nothing in it, (laughs) like it's a tree falling in the forest if no one's around. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you have all of that knowledge that tacit knowledge that lives in the in the brains of your of the people in your organizations. We've seen so many people up and change jobs, change lives, change cities, countries, whatever. That organizational knowledge is walking out of the door. And you can't sit and like have a deep and meaningful conversation with everybody in your entire organization every day so that you can capture their tacit knowledge, which is why you have to have systems in place that can do that and processes in place that will lead to it. But you have to continue to ask yourself, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. One of the biggest things that comes up for, for me there, um, which we've talked about, um, it's just never been recorded for an audience, um, is, you know, not only are data and stories both incredibly important to each other and support each other, we tend to only take seriously the stories and the data that break our hearts. And so where is the joy? Yes. And that that happens not only in philanthropy and fundraising, but it also happens when um, when you tell us when an hourly employee who is black or brown or indigenous and queer tells us a really heartbreaking story, then, okay, if there are enough of those, maybe we'll start to think about changing. The question is never what's going to make you full, what's going to make you happy, what's going to feed you. And so that's another thing that we could do a whole other conversation on, but also not only honoring all of these different forms of knowledge, but also asking ourselves are we focusing on the tears or are we focusing on the joy here? Um, I love that question. That is so huge because we come at things from a place of scarcity or a place of, of turmoil or, you know, somebody I heard the other day was saying um, about this little pause in the pandemic 
this is when we need to be doing the work. You know, this is when we have to plan for the next pandemic or the next wave of, of this pandemic or start to imagine and start to dream. Um, the, the, uh, and which kind of leads me to another thing I wanted to harken back to. You were saying that, that, that especially with racial equity, um, but equity in general is often only held by like one group of people or, off, or even more often with one person who is usually a black woman who is called in to be the chief diversity officer. Um, one of the things that I love about my title is that there's nothing mentioned about racial equity in my title, and yet it is one of the cornerstones of what I do. And it, so it, there, there are two versions of this. One is a, a cookie, a chocolate chip cookie, and one is a cinnamon raisin bagel. So if you think about racial equity, diversity, equity, inclusion, equity as the raisins or the chocolate chips, you can pick them out, right? You can take them away because, oh, I don't like those or, or whatever. But if you think about them, if you think about racial equity, diversity, equity, inclusion, um, equity in general as the sugar or the flour so that it is embedded across the organization and it, you cannot extract it at all unless you've got a centrifuge and who, who has a centrifuge in the back of their building, right? Um, so it, it's, it's like, people always think that equity it, when you know there's that the thing that that uh, teams that are quote unquote diverse are 35 percent more um uh what is it uh, productive that's the word i'm looking for sorry uh it's not because it's all happy 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 dippy whippy it's because people are scared of of offending each other and so they think about they have to think harder about how to make things work so yeah the and the that recipe sort of ingredient analogy i think is perfect and it's you know this is this belongs to everyone and yeah. it affects everyone we're yes. all not free we're i'm not free until we're, we're all free um and you know one of the other big pieces that i completely lost it oh i completely lost my train of thought um, ding, 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 ding. That was your train of thought. That just went by. Yeah, it just went, it just completely went by. Um, nothing is neutral. So one of the other big pieces here is nothing is neutral. They, these conversations don't belong in one single space. And, and when we think about, I think, especially this is, this is what made me think of it when you mentioned, you know, people have to think harder uh, to be in relationship with each other. Um, Harsha Walia, uh, an uh, activist, South Asian woman in, um, in Canada doing a ton of incredible work uh, around migrant justice, um, wrote a book years ago called Undoing Border Imperialism. And, and in that, she talks about social justice work and, um, and activism specifically, where we're going to have hard conversations. And, and this quote really stuck with me, we are each other's undoing. Can we be patient enough with each other to have that forgiveness, to address that grief, to help put each other back together? That's incredible. It's really good, right? Yeah. Oh, so incredible. She just came out with another book called Border and Rule. Um, I have not yet read it, but I'm very excited to. Um, 
So, I mean, we, so we went a lot of places in this conversation, but I think (laughs) that's such a perfect reflection of everything is connected and nothing is neutral, but that doesn't mean it has to immediately be overwhelming. And so, you know, that relationship building, the trust, grounding in why, just get into, just walk down the stairs into the pool and we'll, we'll get there. Um, And and we, we, we offer to hold your hands as, as, as you get into the pool. Um, And I would like to just put one small thing more in case anybody's thinking technology, you just said technology and process are agnostic. How are they not neutral? Well, think about who gets to create the technology or who gets to decide which technology is adopted by an organization, who creates the process, who signs off on the process, whose lives are made better or worse by the technology and or the process. So yes, the technology and the process themselves are agnostic, but the people who create them are not. Mm. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you want to make sure and name uh, before we wrap up? Just my undying gratitude to you. (laughs) And, um, you know, if you're not having conversations like this at least once a week with somebody in your life, maybe rethink your life choices. Mm -hmm. Because there's like, I come out of these sorts of conversations, these relationship building, these knowledge transferring, knowledge sharing, consensus building conversations um, more fired up to figure out why I'm in the swimming pool. Mm. It's not, it's, it's to get to the communities that we need to serve. Same, same. And like you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, you know, there are more questions and there are more ideas and, and that's never going to end. We're working on stuff that we may never see the result of, but that's kind of the point, but we can build a networks that can see the mm-hmm. end of it. There's nothing, nobody, no one person is gonna create or destroy something. It's gonna yeah. take a network of people to do it. So take take the pressure off of yourselves to like to fix everything. Put the pressure on yourselves to go out and have sweaty, meaningful conversations. Mm. Well, thank you for this sweaty, meaningful conversation. <laughs> I just Thank adore you. you. Um, Likewise. And yeah, and I'll make sure that we've got in the, the sources some links to Donita's work and a couple of things that, that she's been working on. But um, let's keep learning in public. Let's keep learning in public. All right. Thank you, Genevieve. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the podcast to learn in public. To learn more about Donita's work, check out the Conversational Leadership Workshops through the University of Maryland, which she co-facilitates beautifully. And look her up on LinkedIn. That's where she posts a lot of her writing, her ideas, and she's just a fantastic person to learn from and with. Be sure to subscribe and join us next week.